Uh, with all of that, uh, we're going to hear our this morning's scripture read to us by Lewis Hedden, um, and then Rinalda, our friend, our pastoral resident, uh, is going to, to lead us in the Lord's Supper, and I will be, but first I'll be preaching on the passage that Lewis is reading. Before Lewis reads, let me just say a word of prayer uh, for the service. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this time. Again, just uh, so much gratitude for your faithfulness, for what you have done uh, that is not on our schedule or our timeline. That is not what we can even imagine, Lord. So I thank you for each person here. I thank you for the ways that you've already met us in this service, Lord, through the beautiful worship, Lord, through the beautiful prayer, through these beautiful testimonies, Lord, that give us glimpses of your your work in our life and in our world. Lord, be with us now. Be with uh, Rinalda as she prepares to lead us to the table. Be with me as I prepare to teach. And please be with Lewis, Lord, as he reads from your word. May the reading of your word be sacred, and may it pierce our hearts mm. as it is spoken over us. Yes. God, we give all of this to you. In, in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Good, mo oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, the reading today comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. I should also tell you that the sermon scripture is printed on the back of your bulletin. <laughs> I'll get better at some of these housekeeping things. Uh, thank you, Lewis, for reading that. 
Uh, so, friends, we're here, uh, finally. Uh, continuing global pandemic has really kept us from meeting in person and even doing uh, many in-person things near the beginning of this year. Uh, but here we are. I'm so grateful, as I've said, uh, to be here this morning. I'm so grateful to St. Paul's House. I'm so grateful for a lot of different reasons. And one reason I'm grateful uh, is also because I think today's passage that Lewis just read is a really beautiful passage. And it's one that might serve us better as our first in-person uh, passage rather than last week. Uh, if you recall, last week we rested on a short passage, just a handful of verses. And in those verses, we didn't really see uh, God at work, not in those verses at least. We didn't see the Holy Spirit moving. Uh, we didn't see the community of Christ growing exponentially. What we saw, we saw disciples, leaders within this first century community uh, be stigmatized as foreigners. We saw hatred and fear used by those in power to stoke a growing crowd who eventually stripped these disciples of their clothes and beat them. And then we saw these wounded, humiliated disciples uh, wrongfully arrested without any justification and thrown into prison and chained up without any sort of trial. And that was the passage. It wasn't really a feel-good passage or a set of verses that gave us super clear guidance. Instead, it was a story, a moment in this continuing study in the book of Acts that reminded us of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. A moment that showed us one group of people, a group that was in power in this community, who used their privilege, used their power to abuse these disciples and to justify beating them and throwing them into prison. It was a moment, a reminder that so often when the Holy Spirit moves and when God's people follow, we are headed for conflict, mm. for difficulty, and for pain. Mm. And now this morning, this morning we get to see what happens in this moment. You see, as I said last week, us dwelling on those verses, dwelling on this frustrating story of abuse and incarceration, that wasn't the end of the story. It was the end of our passage last week, but it wasn't the end of the story. It's an important, significant part of the story, but it was not the end. Just as the Holy Spirit moved Paul and Silas into conflict, we see how the Holy Spirit responds. And we also see how God's people respond. How the Holy Spirit responds. He's going to preach. We see how the Holy Spirit responds and how God's people respond. And we get a really clear sense of the Holy Spirit's response in verse 26 in this morning's passage. That there was a violent, earth-shaking instance that was so massive, the foundations of the prison, not just the prison walls, but the foundations of the prison were shaken. And it was such a massive earthquake. All the doors in the prison flew open, and everyone's chains became loose. Now, the only other time in Acts up to this point that the Spirit moves with an earthquake, uh, we saw was in Acts chapter 4. After the disciples, Peter and John, they were thrown into jail for a night and then questioned by religious and state leaders about who they were. And upon their release, when they returned to their community, they reacted not with revenge or bitterness, but they reacted with prayer. And we are told in Acts 4 verse 31 that after they prayed, the place that they were praying shook. And everybody there, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, so many chapters later, after being thrown in prison, after being questioned and abused, and beaten by the religious and state leaders of their community, Paul and Silas respond to the wrongful arrest, not with bitterness, not with revenge. They respond to their pain and suffering, we're told, with prayer and singing. We see that in the very opening verse of this morning's passage. Prayer and singing so loud that the others who were in the prison could hear them. <laughs> and then, through that prayer and singing, we see the ground shake. And we see the foundations of the prison shake. And we see everything change. How the Holy Spirit moves, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's concise. Now, whether you believe in the Spirit or in this God or not, at least you can see in this story, the author of Acts, Luke, he doesn't beat around the bush. He makes it obvious what God did. God sees his people suffering. He sees his people praying and singing in response to that suffering. And God responds. He responds essentially by setting his people free. And we can't rush past that idea that God sets his people free. Because this freedom, this earthly salvation, at least from this first century prison, was not only for the men who claimed faith in Jesus Christ. It was not only for the men who we've been following in the story, who we know for a fact were wrongfully arrested and thrown into prison without any sort of trial. It wasn't only the chains of Paul and Silas that became loose. No, the salvation and the freedom we see in that one verse, in verse 26, that verse that shows us how the Holy Spirit has never stopped moving in this dire situation, the salvation and freedom we see is for all. Now, I want us to stop there for a moment, because one thing I want us to do is to read this story and to consider this story, a story that took place and was written in the first century. I want us to read it and consider it, not just in that context, but also within our own context today. And our context today in the 21st century in the United States is that we are surrounded by prisons. We're surrounded by walls and foundations that make up prisons. According to the Prison Policy Initiative in our country, we have 1,833 state prisons and 110 federal prisons, so roughly 2,000 prisons. And in those prisons, there are, about, there are more than 1.5 million people incarcerated. It's, it's widely affirmed uh, that in our country, we, the United States, we lock up more people per capita than any other nation on the planet. When you look at those 2,000 prisons, and then you also include the more than 3,000 jails, and so jails being places where, where people are held prior to going to prison or they're held for minor crimes, the United States locks up 690 residents per 100,000. That's 2.3 million people confined in our country, and that is roughly 25% of the world's prison population. To give you some perspective, the general population of the United States is around 330 million. The general population of the world is around 7.8 billion. The United States constitutes 4.25% of the globe's population. But our prison population consists of a quarter of the globe's prison population. So when we read anything about prison, whether it's in the Bible or in a magazine or in a history book, we would be wise to slow down and to really consider what we're reading, what is happening. Consider our presence in a country that incarcerates a quarter of all those who are incarcerated in the world. 
Now, personally speaking, I will say those numbers are enough for me to say we have a problem. We have a prison problem. We have a jailing problem. We have an incarceration problem. Without even getting into the weeds of these numbers, I can say that. Without actually unpacking the brokenness of our criminal justice system, without even considering not just how many people are sitting behind prison walls at this moment, but how many people enter jail and exit jail and enter jail and exit jail in a given year, without confronting the fact that within that 2 million people that are incarcerated, that number, there are 1,500 juveniles who have life sentences without parole. Without considering the reality that it is widely accepted that there are about 20,000 people, 1% of this U.S. prison population that have been wrongfully convicted and in prison. We can say we have a problem without even getting into the staggering ethnic disparities in our prisons. I think in the, in the state of New York, I read something like for every white person in prison, there are five black people mm. and three Hispanic people in prison. Mm. I don't want you to raise your hand or anything, but when you hear some of these numbers, and I don't want to pass myself off as an expert or anything, but this data mm. is very accessible very easy to confirm but when you hear these numbers perhaps when you consider your own experience or your own connection to the criminal justice system to the incarceration system in our country and when you put yourself in the shoes of the audience of the first century who are receiving this story in Acts chapter 16 and you get to the part in the story where prison doors fly open and chains fall off of every prisoner not just the quote-unquote good guys when you hear all of that how do you feel? What do you feel? Do you feel a sense of relief at the story in Acts? A sense of justice that this prison has been shaken? Mm. Or do you feel a sense of fear at the idea that prison doors are flying open and that people who have been incarcerated are now suddenly free? If it's the latter, and if we're honest, I think many of our initial reactions would likely be some type of fear or trepidation at the idea of a prison being shaken open. If that's true, then I want us to really, really rest upon, really connect with the jailer in this story, with the guard. Verse 27, as soon as the doors and the chains are loosed, the jailer who was tasked with guarding these men who have been in prison, he gets ready to take his own life. He's going to fall on his own sword we're told, because he believes the prisoners have escaped. Mm. Willie James Jennings, that professor from Yale, that if you've heard even one sermon from me in this church uh, over the last eight months, you've heard his name. But Jennings, uh, he's written just a beautiful commentary on the book of Acts. And in this moment, he pushes those of us who sense fear when the prison is shaken, he pushes us to consider that we have become one with this jailer that our sense of well-being is shattered if people are set free indiscriminately. The jailer is so scared, his well-being is so shattered that he is prepared to take his own life. But what's incredible here is not that he does take his own life. We see he doesn't. But that it is the very shaking of the prison in which he worked it is the very loosening of the chains of those whom he was tasked with guarding. It is this earth-shaking moment of the Holy Spirit that actually leads to his freedom, too. 
we get this concise picture of how the Holy Spirit moves in verse 26 and the rest of the passage, which concludes chapter 16, it's all about then how God's people respond. And the first response we see is focused squarely on the jailer. Paul and Silas, they could have made a break for it. They could have rallied everyone else and said, let's take this guy down. They were beaten and humiliated. They were wrongfully arrested. And now their chance to be free presents itself. But they don't do any of that. They see the jailer, the man whose very livelihood depended upon their imprisonment. They see this jailer get ready to fall on his sword. He pulls his sword out. And they say, stop. Verse 29, Paul shouts over what we, I have to assume is some type of commotion following this earthquake. He shouts and he says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. I'm sure the other prisoners are like, yo, Paul. <laughs> We're not told much about the response other than the jailer called for lights. So it's, it's dark. He called for lights. He rushes into the cell where Paul and Silas were chained up, and he falls, trembling. And he asks them, what must I do to be saved? Now this connects us to the broader story that has unfolded in chapter 16 over the last couple of weeks, a story that found Paul and Silas traveling the Roman colony of Philippi, telling people what it means to be saved, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's actually the very reason they're in prison, because what they were preaching and proclaiming eventually led to those words threatening the power and financial wealth of some in the city. And so I'm sure the jailer is aware of who these men are, at least somewhat, of what has happened. But even if he's not, if he's completely disconnected from why these men have been locked up. What he does know is that these men were praying and singing, they were joyful in prison, and that something shook the prison to its core, freeing them and all those who were in chains. The Holy Spirit moves, and the disciples respond first to the jailer, not only saving his earthly life, but answering his question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus believe and you will be saved verse 31 we're told this jailer and his whole household were baptized mm -hmm. and they were saved we're told this jailer brought paul and silas into his house and ate with them it's incredible the holy spirit moved and paul and silas continued following the holy spirit's guidance mm -hmm. and that moving and that response led not only to the freedom of those who were captives but it led to the freedom to the deliverance of the captor too mm -hmm. The power of this Holy Spirit, the power of this God, the power of this Jesus Christ that these men had committed their lives to, that we've gathered here at St. Paul's house to worship this morning, the power of this God is that it is not only about the freedom and the salvation of those in chains, but it is about the freedom and the salvation of those who put others in chains. Mm. The captives and the captor, the prisoners and the jailer. This is good news. <laughs> This is good news. This is good news that is not relegated for one people group, that is not available to one community, but this is good news that is offered and that is given to all. But I want you to know that this good news, it will look different sometimes. And though we see incredible beauty in this response of the disciples, this response to the jailer, his life is saved, he gives his life to Jesus Christ, he invites those he imprisoned, Paul and Silas, into his home to eat with them, that we see incredible beauty in that response. There is still one more response that we have to pay attention to following this movement of the Holy Spirit, and that is the response to the magistrates, to the men whose very power and financial wealth was threatened 
by the preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ. The men who had Paul and Silas stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. We see this begin to unfold in verse 35. Before knowing that Paul and Silas were freed, these men in power, these magistrates, they sent their officers to the jailer and they said, okay, you can release them. They don't know what happened. So they still think they're in prison. They still think they're chained up. They said, okay, you can release them. Now, this isn't the first time. We shouldn't be surprised at this. This isn't the first time we've seen God's people get wrongfully arrested and thrown into prison for a night, for a brief period of time, and then just sort of released for no real reason. Acts chapter 4 that I referenced earlier, that is exactly what happens. But this time when it happens... Usually we just kind of see that they are released, and then they go and they pray and, and they, they celebrate. But this time we see how God's people respond very specifically. Mm. Remember, Paul and Silas are already free. Their chains have fallen off. They've eaten with the jailer and his family in his home. Mm. But when the leaders of Philippi try to determine Paul and Silas's freedom themselves, Paul says no. Verse 37, he's clear in his conviction. They beat us publicly without a trial. They threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? Hmm. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Jennings puts it this way. He says, the public humiliation and shame of these men demands public apology. But as powerful and convicting as that response is in and of itself, the most important detail that I didn't just say is that Paul also says we are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas, they were stigmatized as foreigners in last week's passage. Uh, we're told that, that the magistrates, that the people riling up this crowd, they say, these men, Paul and Silas, these men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar. These men, these type of people, they are throwing our city in, into an uproar. We read that in verse 20 last week. And instead of Paul at that very moment shouting out, no, 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 we're also Roman citizens. This colony we're in, we're citizens, we're Roman citizens. Instead of doing that, he and Silas apparently remain silent. They're beaten, they're imprisoned, they're freed, and they see their captor and his family freed as well. And now they use the privilege of their Roman citizenship to seek out justice. Hmm. Last week we saw people in power who felt like their power was being threatened. We saw those people abuse their privilege for their own gain. This morning we see Paul steward his privilege for the sake of justice. And it works because when those in power hear that these men are Roman citizens, we're told they're alarmed in verse 38. And they came to appease Paul and Silas and did exactly what Paul demanded. They escorted them from prison. The very thing that was used as a weapon against Paul and Silas, who they were, these, these Jews who are riling up, who are uh, stirring up our city, we're told last week. That very thing, their citizenship, who they are, now is used against the oppressors to bring about some sort of justice. Now don't confuse this as some sort of righteous justification of citizenship to any country. That's not what these verses are about. These verses are less about where Paul's citizenship lied and more about how he stewarded the privilege that had been given to him of being a citizen. Their Roman citizenship was used to declare that their true citizenship was as disciples of Jesus Christ. I mentioned his book last week, and it's, it's out now, but uh, Dom, Dominique Gilliard's new book, Subversive Witness, uh, it's all about the scriptural basis uh, for us to steward and leverage privilege for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom. And guess what? He's got an entire chapter dedicated to Acts 16. 
considering citizenship, he writes this. He says, we are commissioned to exercise our citizenship and the privileges it affords as a tool to create a more equitable society where all can flourish. We too often view citizenship merely as something that guarantees us individual rights, freedoms, and liberties. But this story in Acts, this story pushes us to reimagine citizenship. Gilliard says this, he says, Citizenship grants power, and how we use this power bears witness to where our true allegiance lies. Kingdom citizens sacrificially use their citizenship to seek the peace and prosperity of their communities, to expose and address systemic sin, as well as to take care for and dignify the least of these. I'm not here to ask you where your earthly citizenship lies, and I'm not here to convince you that American citizenship is what we need. I don't believe that. As we see with the prison system, our political, our legal, our immigration systems, they're all severely broken. And the way we view citizenship and who gets what and who deserves what can feel like it is sometimes beyond repair. But what I'm saying here is that I, what I'm hoping for us to see is what Dominic points out, that as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we could use that citizenship to seek the peace, to seek the justice, to care for our neighbors in Hell's Kitchen, to break down systems of corruption, to break down systems of hate, to respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Mm. The Holy Spirit moves and God's people respond. And as we see in just these few verses, Mm. in those responses of God's people, the Holy Spirit does some incredible things. Mm. What would it look like in your life to follow the Holy Spirit? To follow the Holy Spirit in the moments of deep discomfort, of suffering, of suffering alongside others. Mm. And what would it look like for you then to respond to that? Are you like Paul in a place where you're being called to leverage your privilege for the sake of others around you? When you could make one decision for your own benefit, but instead you use your privilege to to demand justice for others. Mm. Are you the jailer or the magistrates? who are deeply connected to and who benefit from systems of oppression, systems that lead others to believe that there is no hope? Or are you one of the unnamed prisoners in this prison who's been locked up, who is suffering and who feels like there is no hope? The good news that we proclaim as followers of this Holy Spirit, of this Jesus Christ who brings about salvation, as we see in verse 31, It is good because it is for all. Mm. It is for those in prison, and it is for those who throw people into prison. But as I said, the reality of this freedom is going to look different for all of us. It'd be shameful to say freedom for a prisoner and freedom for a jailer are the exact same. Mm. No, when we are saved, when we are freed, when our chains are loosed, we see the fruit of that freedom, of that deliverance, and how we respond, and how we are called to respond. Paul's hope with the magistrates is not to simply embarrass them or to enact some sort of individual justice to make himself feel better. He's using his freedom, his privilege, to change the system so that the society can see what happened. I asked, are you like Paul in a place where you're being called to leverage your privilege for the sake of others around you? If you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, you are called to this. I ask, are you like the jailer or the magistrates who are deeply connected to and who benefit from systems of oppression? 
if your life is shaken to its core by the power of this Holy Spirit, if you believe in this Lord Jesus, how are you now using your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven to destroy those systems of oppression? Mm. Not just to be a better jailer, not just to be a more Christ-like jailer, mm -hmm. but to actively work against systems that cause pain and fear and death. You are called to this. Mm -hmm. And I ask, are you one of the unnamed prisoners in this prison who's been locked up and who is suffering and who feels like there is no hope? My brother and my sister, my friends here, Christ sees you, mm -hmm. and he sees your eternal worth and your eternal righteousness. Christ, our God, the creator of life, the author of all things, he loves you, and you are called to this. We are called to this good news, Hope House Kitchen. We are called to this good news, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Simple words, but hear that again, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word that is given to us, God. Thank you for this history, this revolutionary history of your first church, God, that is recorded in the book of Acts. Lord, may we dive deeper and deeper into what it means to call ourselves Christians, to call ourselves members of, of your church, to claim that we follow the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we feel your presence. May we feel your guidance, God. And even as it takes us into places of discomfort, even as it takes us into places of pain and suffering, Lord, may we remain focused on you. Because even when we are thrown into prison and we are chained up, Lord, you will come and you will shake the earth and the prison to its foundation and loose the chains. And when it feels like there's no hope, God... I pray that we can remember, that we can rest upon the truth that you are always at work and your spirit is always moving. May we support one another in this, God. May we truly follow the spirit, not just as individuals, but as a community and as a church. And may all of that be done, Lord, not for our sake, but for your sake, for the sake of your people in this neighborhood and in this city, God. Be with us now as we come to the table. And as we continue to worship and meet you, God, we give all of this to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Before Jesus died on the cross, he had a final meal with his friends, the disciples. He wanted to give them and us something to remember him by. He used the bread and the wine that they were having with their supper. The broken piece of bread symbolized his body, which was broken when he was nailed on the cross. And the wine symbolized blood that he shed for us. Jesus loves us so much, so much, that he gave his body and his blood so that we could be forgiven when we sin, when we do wrong. 
that's a whole lot of love. So, as the Holy Spirit leads us into taking the Lord's Supper, it's important, so important for us to remember the cost of his love and not take it for granted. When we take the wafer and the juice today, let's think about what it truly represents. Jesus gave us his table. So we wouldn't forget his great, great, great love for us. So let's take a moment of silence and let's remember and reflect on his love. And as the Holy Spirit leads, repent and pray.